we do have amazing help uh, at all levels from the Davic kingdom to the masters of wisdom to wonderful scientists and inventors and average people who are coming up with really great solutions for things that can be done. And the masters also say that it's humanity that needs to, to push the, these, this agenda, push the governments around the world. And that is a foretaste of this episode of the Planetary Makeover Show. In response to the heartfelt voices of an awakening humanity, we have evidence that divine help is at hand to work with us to create a hopeful future. Welcome everyone to another episode of Planetary Makeover. I'm your host, David Minot. And today we're covering a subject that's near and dear to my heart, our guest's heart, and I'm sure many of you, the environment. Now, ordinarily, our focus at Planetary Makeover is on Maitreya, the world teacher. That's M-A-I-T-R-E-Y-A. And his group, he's not coming alone back into the world, the Masters of Wisdom, a group of perfected men. And that's a whole show in itself, which we'll get into another time. And not coincidentally, one of their top priorities is the environment. Because if we can't breathe, there's not much else we can learn or do. And appropriately enough, our guest today is a scientist, not just an environmental enthusiast like myself. Mary Beth Steislinger is both a restoration biologist and a permaculturist. And before I trip over these words anymore, I'm going to have her describe in detail what she means by that. Mary Beth, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Um, my first thing I'll say is, you know, the whole idea of permaculture is pretty much relating to the idea of ecological sustainability. So we're right on track with that. Very good. Very good. And I was wondering, and if you could explain to our audience who is probably curious as well, what inspires you as a scientist, and how did you come to this particular focus in your work? Well, um, the, my, my focus has always been group uh, or community uh, ecological restoration and even community farming. I did uh, a lot of CSA, community-supported agriculture work, uh, over the years. And I'm just a real firm believer in that we need a lot of cooperation and collaboration to address the issues that we're facing today. And my belief is that through that kind of work, we can create more peace, more justice, more sustainability. And that sounds like a, that sounds like a key word, Mary Beth, in both your work and how it connects with Maitreya and the Masters, cooperation. Now, could you tell us what is permaculture and how does it fit in with environmental sustainability? So permaculture really is about creating a permanent culture on the planet. And, um, you know, to do that, permaculture really addresses the natural sciences and um, kind of cultural norms, the way our, our uh, economies operate, um, the way we sort of design things. Um, 
permaculture is all about really uh, honoring the divinity and wisdom in nature by really focusing on mimicking nature um, in yeah. our systems. And could you tell us a little bit more about how we do that and about this mimicry? Because I, I haven't heard that before, and perhaps some of our audience is really curious to know about that as well. Well, one of the things that nature is brilliant at is creating no waste. You know, everything is cyclical in nature. Um, waste for that's created by animals is then used by plants and soil organisms. And everything cycles through, you know, it's the hydrologic cycle of the, you know, the sun evaporating the water and then that cycling back through the plants and the, the trees sort of, you know, breathing out um, oxygen and bringing up the, the, uh, the water from the hydrologic cycle and releasing that into the air. And so it's, everything is cyclical in nature. Nature does not create any garbage. Everything is reused. So permaculture is about looking at how to do those sort of things. Um, for instance, mainly in agriculture, we wanna, permaculture looks at agricultural systems that mimic forests and meadows. And, um, you know, we're thinking about these deep roots and a lot of perennials. And then the annuals are sort of, you know, nested in with the, the uh, perennial plants. A lot, of, a lot of places in the equatorial regions or the semi-tropical regions of the world do a lot of um, forest gardening where they plant hedgerows and then plant their perennial crops in between or their annual crops in between the perennial crops. Hmm, that's fascinating. So, and how can we apply this to the the environmental crises we're having today? There's so many crises um, in the world, uh, so and so many facets of life, and um, not the least of which is the environment. What gives you hope? How can you share that hope with others? And how do you respond to people, to cynics who say it's already too late? Well, that's a that is a good question, because I think all of us have felt that at one time or another. And I would say 30 years ago in my 20s, I was pretty despondent looking around, seeing what was going on, um, seeing the destruction of the environment, seeing the explosion of human population and, you know, not enough education to go along with that. And so I, um, I luckily came across some information um, that Michelle Smallwright was working on and putting out in the world through her nature research organization, Paralandra. And she was looking at working directly co-creatively with nature. Um, and when I say that, I mean, she did studies to show that she could co-creatively work with nature spirits, the Davic realm, which is also known as the angelic realm, hmm. and this group of enlightened guides of the race who um, are called the masters of wisdom or the lords of compassion or the great teachers. Mm. So she worked with them directly. And I was just fascinated by that because I'd grown up Catholic and knew about the saints and knew about, you know, I had an inroad to, you know, being open to this a little bit. And um, that led me to the ancient wisdom teachings as shared by Benjamin Krem. Yes. Yes, of course. Um, and I'm glad that you connected those two. Um, and now that you've mentioned the ageless wisdom teaching, I was wondering 
how does that, the AWT for short, tie into what we could say the unity of all things? And how does the Ageless Wisdom teaching connect with today's environmental movement in, in your eyes? Yeah. Well, I would say the, the key thing, the, the key word you used is unity. And what the Ageless Wisdom teachings talk about, and just to you know reiterate this for people, if I wasn't clear as I started talking about this, the Ageless Wisdom teachings really underlie all the world's major faith traditions. So all the mystic uh, sects of the various programs, whether it's the Essenes or the Kabbalah or, you know, um, mystic Hinduism or um, uh, Islam, uh, really talk a lot about these teachings um, and the unity of all things and the diversity that is humanity that utilizes this unity in different ways. Mm. So, um, let's see, mainly I would say um, we can think of all of evolution, the kingdoms in nature from the mineral kingdom to the plant kingdom, through the animal kingdom, to the human kingdom, as all being in a large flow of evolution. <laughs> and even from the human kingdom, then there's the spiritual kingdom of which the masters of wisdom have graduated. They've learned the lessons of the school of the earth. And they now are graduated and, and helping the, the evolution of the earth. Those who decide to stay and focus on the earth evolution, they can also go on to do other things, supposedly, in the universe. So and, um, we're really looking at this kind of interconnected evolutionary process that also is very tied into the Deva kingdom or the angelic kingdom. And it's said that Devas uphold the forms in nature, so the oak tree, and the aspen and the rose all have that Davic pattern, that angelic pattern that is consistent. And eventually they say, we will, humanity, work co-creatively with the Davic realm, the angelic realm, and um, really learn to heal what we have damaged and create a heaven on earth because we will be working with in the laws of nature. That's, that's wonderful. I can't, I can't wait for that happenstance. And connecting this to going back to the Ageless Wisdom teaching, I wanted to touch upon Benjamin Krem, the artist and esotericist and author who has taught us so much about this emergence of the world teacher Maitreya and the Masters of Wisdom following in the footsteps of people like Alice Bailey and Madame Blavatsky. I know that he was speaking from his own experience uh, for the, um, in, in the main, and that forms the basis of much of what we discuss here on Planetary Makeover. And so I was wondering how that had inspired you and how your work, thus inspired, ties in with Maitreya's priorities as outlined by Benjamin Krem. Well, yes. I mean, one of the things I think is phenomenal about Ben's work is that he takes information from the Ageless Wisdom teachings that Alice Bailey, um, Helena Blavatsky, Helena Rorick, and many other authors who worked with the masters, um, he takes that and really steps it down to make it very accessible 
for people who maybe don't have a big background in philosophy or a big background in, you know, sort of technical information. And um, I think it's been said that, you know, the average eighth grader or maybe it's ninth grader can really apprehend everything in the books that Benjamin Krem and his master wrote. And I would say that, you know, specifically, I really like his, um, his book, The Art of Cooperation, because it is about how we work together in groups to address some of these large crises issues that are, uh, you know, threatening humanity and our, our way of life here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's um, interesting that you mentioned the, the age that can absorb this information, because I think I remember Benjamin Krem saying in one of his books that a 14-year-old today has about the same consciousness level as a scholar from the Middle Ages. So apparently we are making progress. And in terms of environment, tell us, Mary Beth, what can we do in our daily lives as individuals, as families, as communities? How can we learn from nature and develop these practices that you have mentioned as a way of being so that we're doing it intuitively? That is a very good question. And I think for me personally, my practice has been to look at my own personal uh, impact on the planet. You know, I've been, I've been really working towards going towards zero waste for a long time. I compost almost everything. Um, I've got various compost uh, barrels cooking in my, my gardens in a few different locations. And um, I always keep a waste basket separate from a true garbage ba- basket. So the waste is recyclable things that can turn into compost and soil. And then the garbage is then things like, you know, plastics that I can't recycle for the most part. Um, and that brings us back to what you had mentioned about cooperation and sharing. So if you could re- reiterate a little bit more and again, for our audience, what does sharing mean? And how does this tie in with permaculture and well, what you just mentioned, the, um, the um, cycle of nature? Uh, and again, what gives you hope knowing all of this? Uh, let's see. What was the first question again? Um, that was, <laughs> sorry, that was too many questions in, at one time. What does sharing mean? In this, okay, yeah. in this context? Well, you know, to me, it's one of the most interesting things I've learned about Maitreya's teachings is that sharing is a key to the direction that we need to go in as a society, as a race, to really try something that has not been tried systematically and on a large international scale. And so, you know, for, for individuals, I think it's like, you know, sharing things out of your garden, you know, giving of your time and your energy in ways that feel good and aligned with your purpose. But when the masters talk about it, they're really talking about sharing on an international scale. And so what I have read in the Ageless Wisdom teachings is that the masters believe that humanity should create a a global trust, that each nation could give over into that trust that which they have in excess, whether it's natural resources or 
um, technology or um, expertise of some sort. And then, you know, considering food, which is my one of my main interests, that might be, you know, um, uh, food that is preserved and that is an excess, non-perishable, that they can have in this trust. And then if whenever any nation really faces starvation or faces, you know, ecological crises or disease or what have you, and they're just really faltering, we will have different things to give these people out of this global trust. And one of the things that I've heard that I think is really interesting is that the the trust itself, like the trust between peoples, will grow so immensely over you know a short period of time through this process that this will be the key that will lead to permanent peace on earth because we will really be caring for each other in such a, a thoughtful and you know humanitarian way. Hmm, that's fascinating. Now it has been said that the masters never interfere with human free will, which means we'll have to do it on our own. And do you see it as a possibility that we can get motivated enough and shake off our complacency and actually do this work that you've just outlined and, and save the planet? Well, from what I know as a scientist and someone, my master's degree is in sustainable systems. And so I've studied, you know, and I continue to look at and study and research all the latest and greatest things that are being developed by humanity. And it's not just the greatest, latest technology. It's, you know, ways of working together, ways of working more intelligently with nature or ways of working more intelligently with local people on the ground in their place, because of course, local people know the most about their local environment. And so I, I believe we have, you know, 90%, if not 95% of the, the tools and the means and the processes that we need to remake this world into a place where everyone can have their basic needs met. I think the main thing is that there is a lot of resistance from those who have power when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, possibly the way the banking industry works, possibly the way the media work, the media systems work now. And, and so it's, I think it's up to humanity. It's up to the average people on the street to, to galvanize themselves, to organize across, you know, various movements to demand that things change where they need to change. And, you know, for me, that would be starting with climate change issues and with issues of preventable disease and starvation, which, you know, we can absolutely fix. You know, Benjamin Krem said, and it's one of the things I love about him, that, you know, we have an excess of food on the planet, 12% excess, and that easily we can, on a regular basis, weekly or what have you, have two loaves of bread per person. I mean, that's plenty for you know people who are just on the edge of starvation. That's a, that's a lot, and so that's possible. And I know you um, you just touched upon a really key point. I know that um, Mr. Krem had also said in one of his books, goods, um, especially food, stacked stories high in huge facilities, sometimes inside of mountains uh, in the western part of America, 
where the government is storing it in case there's some sort of nuclear holocaust. Of course, not realizing that such a war would only last a couple of weeks and there'd be nobody left to eat any of this food. So it could be transforming the lives of people across the globe, and instead it's being eaten by rodents um, at this time. So I'm wondering globally, which I know you've already touched upon, if you could reiterate some of that too. Globally, what will these solutions look like, and how will we do it? I was thinking of um, young up-and-coming environmentalists too, like Greta Thunberg. Well, for instance, you know, we talked about biomimicry a little bit. And, you know, I know that what Maitreya and the masters have said is that, you know, humanity will will really revamp all of our systems. So, you know, what would transportation look like if it was fully powered by solar? Um, you know, these electric trains and electric cars and the cars and all manufacturing itself would be cyclical. So the Germans have done a lot of work in this direction. Um, decades ago, they were working on what they called the Blue Point system, which was, you know, manufacturing that would really could be almost all recyclable. And there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, manufacturers owning their product and people just leasing them until they break down and then they take them back and revamp them and remake them and send them back out again, which I think would be fabulous, especially if there was no bad effluent and no bad, you know, heavy metal pollution. That's, you know, we have to really get serious about that because the, the pollution in the world is not diminishing when it comes to non-biodegradable chemicals and you know heavy metals that aren't chelated like they would be if we composted our sewage sludge for instance a lot of the time mm. it's just spread right on fields or you know areas they're trying to reclaim it's a it's a horrendous practice especially when we know how to compost we just aren't doing it you know we're not taking the time and it it's so much better for the plants and the animals and the water and all of us so this biomimicry can go across, it seems, every facet of our lives. And it's, Absolutely. And something, Absolutely. Um, so um, let me see if I remember some of those. Um, everything from transportation, vehicles, to manufacturing, to um, energy production. Are there any that I missed there? Well, one in particular that I'm very excited about is if you read another one of the books that Benjamin Krem wrote with his master, um, they're called Maitreya's Mission. And it talks about the way that the masters and Maitreya will inspire humanity to really remake our cities into literally, you know, havens on earth for ecological um, examples of sustainability. So imagine green roofs everywhere. Imagine ecological uh, architectural surfaces covered with green living plants. Imagine buildings that acted like leaves, that they absorbed the sunlight and then produce energy. So buildings that themselves were generators of energy, not energy sinks. And I think, you know, we'll see more and more living buildings. So buildings that actually have living walls that are connected to the soil and trees that are integrated into the, the architecture. Um, 
you can see it any, now, today, if you go on the internet and search for it, but it's just amazing to think about. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I saw these this National Geographic about these tribes in South America that wove bridges across rivers with living trees and vines. And, you know, that sort of thing is just really exciting to me because to have living structures that, you know, we can really uh, interact with is is just magical. And that became a, a, a ritual for them, too. I'm not sure. I'm thinking of the same tribe that they would um, remake those bridges um, once a year or every couple of years, something like that. And everybody got involved. Right. Yeah. It was kind of a community art form, which is wonderful. And the cities, can you tell us more about that? I know that I had read in one of Benjamin Krem's books where they called it the masters, the masters of wisdoms, beautification of the cities program, which I think they said would be in full swing uh, within a century. And what that would look like as far as housing, business, manufacturing, parks, all manner of green space. Could you paint a picture for us of that? Well, it's one of my favorite things to think about, certainly. I, I live in a couple urban areas at different times of the year and on a farm during the um, winter. And so it's really always kind of interesting to go back and forth between the city and you know the countryside and think about how we could bring that into the cities. Um, I've been working in urban farming for quite a while as well. I um, helped to start Grow Pittsburgh, which is an urban farming organization in Pittsburgh that does incredible, wonderful work uh, working with young people and teaching them how to grow food. And so I think growing a lot of food in the cities and having a lot of edible landscapes around will be big. Um, I know there's two uh, particularly interesting organizations I love to mention. One's called fallenfruit.org. And the other one is called um, Ripe Near Me. Uh, and I think it's like ripenear.me. So it's an app that you can get. And, um, you know, think about if people could just figure out where, which fruit trees were in bloom that were in public places and just go and, you know, get a, a wonderful, healthy snack. And um, it's a way to also improve health through good nutrition and to, you know, improve food security for those who are low income. And certainly in the cities, a lot of younger children don't have access to fresh, healthy food. And so I'm a huge fan of that. And one of the things I like to do with my neighbors is um, when someone dies or a baby's born or someone has an important anniversary or birthday, to, to get together with some of my neighbors and give them a fruit tree. We, we, of course, ask permission first. Are they interested? And usually they are. And, and so I've been creating block orchards and I, what I call berry alleys um, in the urban areas where I live. And that's been really a wonderful thing. And is that something, too, since I'd be interested in having that here, uh, I'm in Boston, something that you would interact with city government about to get permission i suppose sometimes you don't need permission if ever there was a like a public alley where 
you had to get clearance to do it. And, and, and how were a city and public officials responding to th these ideas? Well, you know, 99% of the people think it's great. I've had one neighbor who keeps shaving off limbs of my pear tree because he can't get his large SUV into his garage. So he's not so happy about it, but <laughs> other people seem to be fine with it. And I often see the, the garbage people picking the fruit, you know, as they're going down our street. So I, you know, I, I think it's great. I mean, my garbage men are my heroes, you know, they're doing a difficult job. And if I can share some of my, our block orchard fruit with them, it makes me happy. Um, well, That's one a... thing I wanted to mention too, about like other things of beautifying cities. Um, in Pittsburgh, where I live for part of the year, they've really got this wonderful program for um, encouraging peregrine falcons on the buildings, mm. on the, the tall buildings. And that keeps the pigeons at, you know, at a healthy level. And, um, and there's a, there was a big movement um, a few decades ago called the Big Open, where it was about you know, working with the Bureau of Land Management and government to allow migrating animals to you know, move through the landscape as they used to. And that, if you use that analogy and bring it into the cities, what would it be like to have these migration corridors that went right along our rivers and really give the animals space again to utilize these you know, spaces that we've kind of cut off from them. And what, what kind of beauty and inspiration would that bring to the inner cities? You know, whether it's bird life or migrating deer or you know, um, fish, you know, bringing fish back. In, in Pittsburgh, our rivers were so polluted for so long. And then there was this huge celebration wherein the mayflies were able to lay their eggs and hatch out of the rivers again. And you can actually catch trout and there's otters in the rivers there. So there's huge amounts of hope if the, one of the top industrial cities in the world, Pittsburgh, could clean up. But you know, for now, we're probably sending most of our, our manufacturing to other places to be done. And what my ideal would be is that all, every bioregion would have their own manufacturing so we don't have things, you know, halfway around the world for efficiency. And, you know, every place could have their manufacturing that is totally green and totally sustainable. And something else that this inspires now me to mention is that Benjamin Krem and Maitreya, the Masters of Wisdom, had all talked about people power, saying that people power was the new world superpower. And I'm looking at what you've outlined and discussed. So much of this was done by the people, not by the governments. And it's inspiring uh, the leaders themselves to change. As the saying goes, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And here in Boston, we've also, we've also seen a resurgence of falcons and hawks and, uh, and other animal life. Sometimes not so welcome, but that's what happens when we destroy their habitats. And there's also a park near here that used to be an orchard. It was a farm. And so you can see there plum trees, pear, apple, cherry. And there is a little bit of harvesting that goes on, but not a lot. We need more of your work here in Boston. I was up there last fall in the park when they were pressing the apples into cider. But much more along those lines needs to happen. And 
so that tells us more about the cities. Oh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention, too, that I think um, Bennett touched upon, um, from, and probably from Maitreya's uh, influence and inspiration, was the idea that there would be more green space than there is today in all the cities. I don't know what it's like in Pittsburgh and some of the other places you live, but here in Boston, they're trying to, as I put it, and if you'll excuse my language, <laughs> put a building on every damn piece of open land in the city. And I would ask at public meetings, do you really have to do that? We need the green space. So do you see us not only having more fruit trees and berry trees and, and more animal presence in the cities, but do you see us having more green space, more parkland? I do. And I think um, one of the ways that we can kind of have the best of both worlds is to green all of our roofs. I know that there are certain cities in the world, and I know Stuttgart is supposed to be one of the best examples of this, uh, Stuttgart, Germany, where they've greened almost the entire city from the rooftops. And there happens to be a trail that you walk around um, sort of up in the hills and the mountains around Stuttgart, and you can look down and you can see how incredibly green the city is. So there's never one way to do anything. And I think through creativity, we can create green spaces in all sorts of unique and wonderful ways. I also think it's it's not good to concretize a city. You know, it just creates incredible problems downstream in the rivers and in the creeks. And the fish can't live when they're scoured out with every small little rain event because there's no infiltration. And so looking at ways to um, really have permeable pavement and more green spaces where we have, you know, water features that will not only be um, useful for overflow of water, but allow that, you know, reinfiltration of the water into the, into the soil and into the groundwater and clean it in the process. You remind me, Mary Beth, of something that my dad used to tell us is that wetlands are shock absorbers. That's where the water goes, you know, when it has nowhere else to go. And then in times of drought, the water is available there for nature to draw upon. And when they fill in these spaces and, and as you said, um, asphalt and concretize everything, the ground can't breathe. um, The water can't go into the ground, so it runs off and can cause flooding and other problems, as you outlined. And another one of his mantras was, always build above the floodplain. And that's something else we haven't done. And have, have you had to address that sort of issue as well in, in your environmental sustainability work? Uh, absolutely. And one of the main things that I always suggest is that rather than having so many mode areas that we have, you know, meadows with a mode edge. So it looks cared for. It looks you know, neat, um, there's wildflowers growing, different seasonal color coming through the meadows, lots of pollinator species, which is really, really great for all our urban fruit trees and our urban gardens. And it's great in the, in the countryside as well. So how can we not mow so much, not use these fossil fuel machines so much um, in the cities, reduce noise, reduce, um, you know, pollution, and, and really utilize more perennial deep roots to soak up that water. Um, we did a restoration project in one of the ravines that had a major thoroughfare road going through it. And after um, a, a 
fairly large rainstorm, we had two people die on that road, getting washed out of their cars into the river. And it was just a horrendous thing. And what what was what came of that was actually something hopeful. So this wouldn't happen again. They took this huge mowed field and they created infiltration ponds and meadows all around them. So an incredible wildlife corridor was built right into the city, connecting to one of the largest parks in the city. And um, we haven't had that same kind of flood again. And so it's those kind of things need to be thought of um, in the cities and on the coastlines because we're we're starting to have a lot of flooding there as well. So how do we how do we deal with these solutions creatively? Hmm. And I know too. You touched upon this um, earlier about the Devitt Kingdom and whatnot. I know that both Alice Bailey uh, before Ben, um, Alice A. Bailey and Benjamin Krem touched upon the Devic Kingdom and how it interacts with humanity. So uh, I think you could talk a little bit about that, how when people say, well, I enjoy working in the garden, it makes me feel good, that it's more than just a feeling. There's an inner energetic, I should say, energetic interchange between people and plants. Right. Like I said, the... Um, according to the Ageless Wisdom teachings, the, the nature spirits are the builders and the devas, the angels, are the architects of the forms. And so, and, and then the masters work directly with the devic kingdom as well. Some of the masters are focused entirely on the devic evolution, and most of them are focused on the human evolution. But quite a few of them are focused on the devic evolution. And as we can learn to co-create more with nature... And I, I believe that's a process of really studying nature, meditating in nature, um, being open to intuitive inspiration around our relationships and, and work in nature. Um, we can begin to co-create more. And I mentioned, you know, an, an amazing woman, Michelle Small Wright, and the work she does, she teaches people how to co-create with nature through very um, precise processes. She's very much of a scientist herself, um, who's also very intuitive. And um, so, you know, through reading some of her work, through reading Benjamin Krem's work, through reading Alice Bailey's work, you know, we can all get clues and ideas for how we might co-create more closely with nature and work in ways that will really create new patterns and new systems for humanity to honor the natural wisdom that is all around us all the time. Hmm. I think that bears repeating too. If you could tell us again, Mary Beth, um, the about the angelic kingdom and the devic kingdom. Who's the builder um, of the? Who's the creator of the form and, and so on? Could um, could you repeat that for us? So the nature spirits are the builders of the form. They're the some people will call them the the elementals. Um, and then the, the, the devas, the more evolved, more, you know, aware, more connected to humanity and to kind of system work, the devas themselves are the architects. So um, when we build a new invention, we're working with devic energy and we're bringing that down through our souls intuitively and we're developing these, these new devic patterns, which then become eventually a new form 
that will do different and new things. And the idea is that we create these new forms, whether it's a chemical or it's an electronic device or it's a, you know, uh, we're, we're breeding new, new seeds, you know, for different types of food. We can create with the David realm in ways that are truly healthy for humanity. We need to, you know, really put that out there as the priority, you know, because the devas are here to serve our, you know, to work with us and to serve our needs, to help us create. They're the, they're the ones that hold all the form around us, the patterns of the atoms. They, they are the custodians of that. And we just take that for granted because we don't understand it deeply enough. Um, and yeah, that, there's some incredible work that Alice Bailey has done. The Consciousness of the Atom is an amazing a, book that kind of goes into this in a little bit more detail. Um, and, you know, those great inventors and scientists like Einstein and Edison and, you know, Marie Curie and such, these, they were using their souls to take, bring down this information. And they were co-creating with the devas, though they may not have known that, you know, and apparently you're doing the same thing, Mary Beth, because when you mentioned The Consciousness of the Atom by Alice A. Bailey, that was exactly what I was thinking about only moments before, and I was going to jump in, but you beat me to it. And, <laughs> and seeing as how you're such a powerful teacher on the score, how can people like yourself and, and, and all of us, how can we make it more clear to people to provide clarity that they are one with nature and that as the planet goes so we go and thus make them less complacent and more inspired on fire to save the planet because they realize that they in a sense are the planet well that is well said david and i i want to say that all you have to do is look at our genetics. You know, we're very similar. Our genet we say we share like 90% or 95% of our genetics with a starfish. Mm. You know, so we did truly come out of the animal kingdom, our early animal man, when we were able to get our souls. We owe our evolutionary past and development to this beautiful earth that has given us the very, you know, the very elements to knit together our, our physical bodies and our soul can then be housed in these beautiful physical bodies to do what we need to do on the planet. So, you know, we are deeply connected to all living things on this planet genetically. And, um, you know, each kingdom eventually evolves into the next. And you can see that with the, you know, carnivorous plants or emerging towards the animal kingdom and in the animal kingdom you can see those animals that are very connected to the human mental processes the dogs and the primates and the cetaceans that are, can work with us with amazing facility because they just have such a mature mental body and it's said that a lot of those animals you know in the far future when the gates between the kingdoms open they will then take human souls and move on to their their and evolution and so we are truly kin to everything on the planet and when you think about that it's you know a deep like wow mystical beautiful thing that i you know i'm very touched by 
And I think about that when I, you know, just on the farm today, there was a baby rat that was crawling up the wall to escape when we were cleaning out the, the barn. And I just thought, oh, you know, people hate rats, but this rat is, you know, serving a niche in the, in the environment. Even in cities, it serves a niche and it's only there because it can serve that niche. And so I, you know, I had a leather glove on, I picked it up and I brought it into the woods and because these are wood rats, you know, and so they're fine to live out there. Um, but everyone I was with was like, ah, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know, it's our relative. Come on. So, you know, I feel that way about all, all, all animals and plants. Um, I, I'm repelled by ticks and mosquitoes and fleas and that and lice and those sort of things. But they, once again, they, they serve a niche in the environment and, you know, we have to recognize that and, and deal with them accordingly. You know, we don't want them in certain places. So how do we do that? How do we design for them to be in the right place in the environment? Um, how do we design to, you know, limit invasive plants so they don't take over our native landscapes and not spread poisons all over the place. I mean, this is a co-creative challenge we have to work with the Davis and the nature spirits on these issues. Um, they're not simple issues, they're challenging issues and there's a lot of them, but I believe in the future we will tackle these sort of issues because as the new people come in, they have the wherewithal, they have the soul connection to do this work each generation will be fit appropriately for the challenge. And you bring up something else too, or you inspired me to think about it at least, Mary Beth, is global warming. When you mentioned the ticks that made me think about it, my another thing my dad used to say um, with this issue or the disturbance in the environment, things don't go to sleep when they're supposed to, they don't wake up when they're supposed to, they don't die when they're supposed to and come back on schedule. And for instance, here in New England, we've had moose that have just been plagued by ticks and some who have actually died uh, from the blood loss. And this is due in part to the global warming, which Maitreya and the Masters of Wisdom have told us through Benjamin Krem that we're responsible for up to 80%, responsible for 80% of global warming. And I was wondering, how do you raise people awareness about something so fundamental that is still astonishingly controversial in some, in some groups? Yeah, well, you know, it's sad, but I think some people just don't want to believe it until all of a sudden it hits them in their home, you know, whether it's a storm that damages their property or their crops or their forest or their city, you know, sometimes it takes that much of a wake-up call for people to, to pay attention. Um, mm -hmm. It's my belief that the vast majority of humanity believe in global warming and want something to be done. I mean, you know, you look at the, the polls and it is truly most people believe in global warming. I'm not about to try to convince people who are adamantly against it because it's a uh, it's sort of a philosophy choice on their part. So I'm great. about just working with those who are either on the fence or are, you know, definitely committed to working on the issue. And that's where I tend to put my energy. I don't want to argue about it. I want to go to work, you know, and let the, um, let the 
the wheels of fate or the winds of fate, you know, do the work that they will um, to prove to people that this is an issue. And I think, you know, those who are, are still thinking it isn't have their heads in the sand, but, you know, that's a choice. Yes, and as, um, as the salespeople say, don't waste time on a non-buyer. And as you pointed out, there's plenty of people in the world that are convinced this is an issue and are willing to work on it. So if we put right. our heads together, we can really change things. You know, something else you remind me about, the, these images were coming to me as you speak when you talked about the interconnectedness of mankind and nature. We've all seen those pictures where they show the veins and capillaries, you know, in your hand or something, and then they show the veins in a leaf, and then they show a view from high up in the atmosphere looking down at a river, and the river and all its tributaries look like veins, and they all have the same pattern. As above, so below is one of the, you know, major tenets of the Ageless Wisdom teachings. And, you know, one of the things I always go back to uh, is Maitreya's statement that, you know, humanity is pushing the biosphere to the edge of the abyss by the way we're refusing to change. And what Maitreya also says is that we will go to the edge of the abyss, but we will not go over because the vast majority, like I said, of people want fairness, they want justice, they want ecological sustainability. They're willing to change with help and with advice and with support and go in new directions because they know we have to. Um, you know, we do have amazing help uh, at all levels from the David kingdom to the masters of wisdom to wonderful scientists and inventors and average people who are coming up with really great solutions for things that can be done. And, um, you know, we, we, the masters also say that it's humanity that needs to, to push the, these, this agenda, push the governments around the world. And the masters say that, you know, no government eventually will be able to withstand the pressure from massed public opinion to change and go in the directions of sustainability, peace and justice. And I believe sharing as well. We, we've got to wrap up because we've only got a, a few minutes left. Um, but go, go ahead and finish your thought, Mary Beth. Well, you know, just what I said, you know, the, the, you know, each human being needs the basics on the planet, food and water, an adequate supply of food and water, health care, education, housing. Um, the masters say that, you know, through the process of sharing, eventually we will learn that if we can honor the divinity in each human being, because each one of us is a divine being, a spark of God, if we can honor that and give everyone the basics and allow that then to allow each person to flower into the being they are supposed to be with the gifts that they've been endowed with, we will have the energy and the direction and the means to, you know, to make every change that we need to build every new system, to restore those things that are worth keeping and move forward and create really literally heaven on earth. Well, in this way, Mary Beth, you have brought our conversation full circle, not unlike the cycle of nature in which you've touched upon, again, the Aegis Wisdom teaching and Benjamin Krem and the urging of 
uh, Maitreya um, and the Masters um, to take action now, um, as, I, as I mentioned, the, um, the quote, nothing happens by itself, mankind must act and implement his will. That sounds like what, what, what it is you're trying to get us to do. And with that, I think we'll need to wrap up. However, this is a huge subject, and I know you have much knowledge to share, uh, not only with the group that's watching these shows, but with the whole world. And I have a feeling that in the coming years, you're going to find a growing and receptive audience to all that you have studied with the permaculture and um, restoration biology and, and all the rest of it. So thank you so much, Mary Beth, for joining us and enlightening us, educating us, and giving us hope. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. So I imagine people will get on board in more and more and more in this direction. And you can just talk to the young people. So many of them are into this work. It's really hopeful. So the future is in good hands. I'm glad to hear I it. So. Well, <laughs> well on, on that score, we will say goodbye till next time. And Mary Beth, thank you so much for educating us. And we look forward to seeing you once again here on Planetary Makeover. Thank you, David. Visit us on Facebook at hashtag Planetary Makeover. This show has been a production of planetarymakeover.org. At our website, we have a link to our bi-weekly live show at 5 p.m. Mondays Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. At our website, we also have a link to our archives and a selection of our shows. For more background info, visit www.shareinternationalwest.org. That's shareinternational-west.org. For related books in DVDs and CDs by Benjamin Krem on the emergence of Maitreya, the world teacher, please go to share-ecart.com. That's share-ecart.com. We also invite you to watch another show that we really love entitled, What in the World is Happening? And that show, which you don't want to miss, is produced by Share International Canada. And it airs every second and fourth Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. The link to check it out is share-international.ca or visit the Share International Canada Facebook page.